Hello, my name is Teddy Wienroth and you are listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience. Listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode number 74. And I'm your host, Helena Levin, and joining me for the show is my co-host uh, Pontus Pokman. Всем привет! Hey son, hey son! What? No one dressed what? today. <laughs> yeah, it was quiet when I was <laughs> doing the introduction. I, I really want to say joining me R, but then I realized that it actually is not R because um, <laughs> there is no, no Andres. He is otherwise engaged, unfortunately, today. But uh, he will be back with us next week. Yes, it's an interview show. So uh, we have an interview, very interesting interview with Teddy Wienroot, who is a psychologist and a criminologist from Sweden. And he's going to tell us about a series of scandals in the legal uh, system in, in Sweden and where psychology has a, a big uh, part of this. And it's also something that teaches you to be skeptical. So yeah, it'll be very interesting. We'll... Yeah. Interesting stuff. Again, uh, discussing uh, how fallible our brains are, really. So Yeah. And just a quick reminder to everyone, to all our listeners, uh, um, the usual, the calendar that's on our website um, is updated with all the events that we are aware of. Um, the donate button is still there. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And where for is that? Our, <laughs> where is that the, exactly? The, yeah. So the, that's for those of our listeners who, who would like to contribute to um, the making of the show. And it's on the, our website, theesp.eu. And I'll also give you um, our contact details just in case you haven't got them. And you can uh, follow us on Twitter. So our Twitter handle is at espodcast underscore EU. Um, you can email us. And our email address is info at theesp.eu. Or you can like us on Facebook uh, and uh, share our content uh, with your friends. Uh, also, if you're getting our podcast via iTunes, um, please leave us a review. Yes, so uh, with that, I think we should go into the interview and listen to Teddy Wienroth. Let's go. On every other episode, we usually interview a person representing an organization or a project, either from certain European country or stretching across borders. Today, our guest is Teddy Wienroth, Swedish psychologist and criminologist, and also active in the Swedish Skeptics Association, VOF. We have invited Teddy to explain to us two criminal scandals which involves very questionable interrogation techniques and other things. Teddy, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Before we get into the actual scandals that we want to talk about, uh, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about yourself and, and who you are. Well, like you said, my name is Teddy and I'm this 36-year-old psychologist and criminologist who lives in Sweden. Uh, I started studying basic psychology back in 2005 and I ended up with a master's degree in, I believe, the 
<laughs> the proper translation of the master's program was security science. Oh. So I studied criminology and law and, you know, terrorism and stuff like that. Mm. And uh, originally it was intended that I was to, you know, have an academic career as a researcher. Uh, but I ended up actually studying the psychologist program in Umeå in the north of Sweden. Mm-hmm. So uh, in 2015, I was done with my studies and I had two degrees. Uh, and uh, I started working as a clinical psychologist. And uh, I have sort of niched myself recently uh, working with a lot of uh, company healthcare related to uh, victims of crime and such things. Mm-hmm. So sounds like the perfect background to, to talk about this. Well, maybe not perfect, but hopefully. Well, it's I'm better than mine, <laughs> <laughs> or mine, for that matter. <laughs> so the first case is very well known here in Sweden, and it concerns a man that at the time was known as Thomas Quick. It's a bit of a long story, but before we actually get to the scandal as such, who is he, and what was he accused of? Well, the very very short version of it is: it was a man who admitted to about. 30, 40 murders or so. And he spent a number of years in the Swedish psychiatric system and he uh, he ended up being convicted for eight murders. Mm-hmm. But then somewhere around year 2000, he stopped cooperating with the, the therapists and the, the police and he just went silent. He refused to cooperate with anyone. And then around 2007-something, this Swedish journalist called Hannes Råstam had this uh, interview with him. And Råstam, I think he was an absolutely brilliant journalist. Råstam had done some really good research upon this whole matter. And he sort of pushed Thomas Quick in a very clever way. So Thomas Quick ended up retracting all his confessions. Mm. And that really started a huge circus of media frenzy and (laughs) lawyers going at each other's throats and psychologists, you know, fighting it out. And it was just madness for a couple of years there. And it sort of ended up with this huge government um, commission where they investigated the whole thing. And that went on for like over a year. And I think it was in, oh, let's see here, 2013? I'm not sure. Never mind. Some years ago, the, the commission, uh, they they published their final report and they pretty much said, yes, this was a huge scandal. Mm-hmm. A scandal of the, the Swedish court system, a scandal of how the Swedish media works, and a huge scandal of how the, the Swedish psychology departments, especially forensic psychology, works. And um, what has been revealed about the interrogation techniques during all this time? Oh, there's a lot to say about that as well. Um, Well, pretty much this. I'm trying to keep my answers short here, but Mm. Thomas Quick, his real name is Sturebergvall, but he he changed his name during these whole proceedings to Thomas Quick because that was his kind of serial killer alter ego persona. Thomas, um, he was probably a very, very good cold reader. A clever guy, even though the guy is, pardon my French, a a, a fucked up guy in many ways, because the man's life was a complete tragedy. But he was a very clever guy anyhow, anyhow, and he could manipulate people. 
and uh, he uh, he cold read the interrogators, for instance, so he could sort of deduce what the correct answers were. Just to be clear, can you describe what cold reading is? Several of our listeners knows already, but but just yeah. to make sure. Well, cold reading is actually just you know observing the reactions of the person you're talking to. It's like that old saying of that baseball coach Yogi Berra: "You can see a lot by simply observing." <laughs> You know, you're, you're, you're talking to someone, and if, if the person you're talking to suddenly starts to frown, you know you're going in the wrong direction. Yeah. So you adjust your story so that person smiles again. And, you know, a lot of, you know, card readers and palm readers and whatever bullshit they're into, they're, they're just all about cold reading. That's all there is. And when you read the transcripts of these interrogations with Thomas Quick and the, the police officer that interrogated him, you can quite obviously see that the the, inter- the chief interrogator sometimes by mistake gives these clues about you know what was the murder weapon and stuff like that and 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 quick all of a sudden ends up you know giving away these details after many 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 hours of interrogation and then the whole thing just sort of flips around and the prosecutor goes how could he possibly have known that unless he's guilty yeah so, so- basically he gave them the answers they were looking for and also whenever thomas quick was on a leave from the mental hospital because he was allowed many of these leaves which is very interesting he was considered extremely violent and dangerous and unreliable but yet he had unsupervised leaves from the hospital Hmm. so he would go to the royal library in stockholm and he would go into the newspapers magazine and he would read up on these old murders and then he would come back into the interrogations and he would you know he would be able to like draw a map of the murder scene which so, actually was a map he saw in the newspapers yeah yeah so he was reading up on the <laughs> yeah. details of the murders yeah so, and so, this perverted logic just you know flipped once again and the prosecutor goes like oh how could he possibly have known that unless he was the one who did it you know yeah. so it's just it was just a, a, a black farce of logic and police methods but how, what of course you can't you you can't put a diagnosis on people etc that you have never probably met but it well i can but yeah I you, well, do you it should for ethical <laughs> reasons perhaps but if you would try to just in general speculate why what would drive somebody to confess to murders that they haven't done oh that's a good question you know we a couple of years ago in the 80s we had the uh, assassination of our prime minister olof palme and ever since there's been like 40 people confessing the murder of Olaf Palme. Mm. And <laughs> yeah. Same yeah. same happened with the American presidents, didn't it? So it's not Yeah, sure, sure. It's it's a, it's a common phenomenon because there's a lot of whack jobs out there, you know. That's why I'm in business. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> True that. <laughs> well, sure, it's just basic math, really. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, um you know people confessing to f- false, you know, false confessions. There there we we Roughly speaking, consider there are two, two, two categories of those false confessors. One is the people that confess because of torture. So they just confess to anything just to get out of the torture. If you look at like the Gilford Four and the Birmingham Six in those cases, those people were tortured into false confessions. But then you have the kind of, you know, more of a pathological liar types that they're, they're, they had confessed these murders or whatever for the fame, for the glory, for, you know, whatever, whatnot. And, uh, I don't know Sture, I haven't met him, but I have read his books and, and Sture recently, Sture today is a completely free man, he has no diagnosis whatsoever, 
He is uh, sober from many, many years of addiction. And he wrote, I think, a very good book, uh, which translates the title, Only I Knew Who I Am. And I read it, of course. And he, he goes into a very, very personal, very, very intimate journey of describing a, a horrible upbringing, being a gay man in a very Christian family in a small town in Sweden. And how he ended up in the Swedish psychiatric system giving, you know, electric shock therapy and insulin coma and these kind of things to treat him from his homosexuality. This was like back in the 60s something. Wow. And, you know, one thing led to another and the guy couldn't embrace his sexuality according to his own story, of course. And uh, he started, you know, abusing alcohol, amphetamines. He was sniffing glue. There was this chemical trichloroethylene. So Sture was a very, very broken, very, very sad person. And uh, he did commit crimes. Uh, he, he did sexually assault some young people when he was like 18, 19 or so. He did stab this student in, in some... He had this weird psychosis one night because he was sniffing huge amounts of this trichloroethylene. And he stabbed this guy in, in you know this madness. So sure... Sture Bergvall is, is not a, you know, a perfect babysitter, but that doesn't make him the craziest serial killer known in history. Yeah. So, and, and uh, Sture himself says that eventually he, he, he botched a bank robbery, and it was quite a nasty bank robbery. They, they took a family hostage. They tried to dress up. And they took the, the banker's family hostage one early morning with, you know, knives uh, at his home. And they told the banker to, you know, go and go get the money or you would kill your family, pretty much. Wow. Yeah. So, so that family, they, they were traumatized. And, uh, well, Sture, <laughs> uh, look, it, it's very easy when these things, when you get started talking about the whole Sture Bergvall story is that people always get sort of hooked up on those crimes he did that were not murders. And I say once again, you know, I Sture is definitely a guy who's done some bad things, but on the other hand, he has done the time for those crimes. He's yeah. been, you know, locked up for a long, long time. Yeah, but it wasn't hard so, for the police to believe that he was the, the, the guy because he had such a bad background. Yeah, it was a cakewalk for the police because Sture has this sort of uh, distinct uh, accent and everything. So they figured out it was him right away. The bank robbery was just so botched and Sture panicked because he was so afraid of going to prison. So he just malingered. He, he just blew up his you know insanity as much as possibly and he ended up at the, the mental hospital of Sater. And there at Sater, he came in contact with these psychologists and doctors who were very much into the whole theory of repressed memories. Mm -hmm. And they started giving Sture huge amounts of benzodiazepine, copious amounts. And what is that? Well, benzo is a sedative drug, uh, usually commonly called like Valium. Oh, okay. It's, it's, I can't swear on the chemistry of it because I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm a psychologist, but it, it's a sedative drug and it really takes away all your inhibitions. I, I, can, I can admit something here. Some, some, quite some years ago, I, I tried it out myself. I was quite younger and I was quite curious. And I tell you, you don't have a good judgment when you've taken benzodiazepines. Okay. <laughs> you can do and say crazy things. 
so Sture was on these huge amounts for years and years and years. And he was in this crazy theory about repressed memories and all that. And uh, Sture was actually very, very afraid of being let out from the mental hospital because in the beginning they were going to let him out. They had considered him, you know, healthy, mm. cured. And he was so afraid of going out back in life because he had nothing there for him. No job, no education, no family, no nothing. Yeah. So he decided to, you know, keep on malingering some more because that was the only career he could have. Yeah, it's it's a it's a huge tragedy, and not only a tragedy for the you know the story of, of Sture Bergvall, who you know wasted his life at Sater, but we have some some horrible horrible complications of these false confessions. You know, families and relatives to people who actually were murdered. They were you know they never got their justice from the system. The the many real murderers got away. So what what can you tell us about the psychologists involved in this? Because it wasn't just the police who who no, um, right. did well, things wrong. That, that's also quite a story to tell. And if you really want to go into that, you're going to have to read the book of Don Josephson, uh, the man who stopped lying. Mm. The whole background and the whole you know setting to what happened with the therapy and the and the you know whatever you want to call it, the treatment. <laughs> in quote brackets, at Sater. Um Once again, I'm trying to make a long story short here. There was this woman named Margit Norell. Margit was this very Freudian psychodynamic lady, and she was very much a pioneer of psychotherapy and Freudian psychotherapy of sorts in, in Sweden back in like 50s, 60s and so. And she was... She was very much into, you know, sex education and workers' rights and union rights and all kinds of stuff like that. But Margit, she sort of created this society of psychoanalysts. So it was a bunch of people, psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, you know, some doctors, and they were really, really into this Margit Norell society. And a lot of those doctors today who have dropped out of that society say straight out that it was a sect. It was a cult, a cult of psychoanalysis. Hmm. And Margit Norell was the cult leader. And, hmm. and these guys, they say it flat out. And many of the people who worked at Sater, they were adepts of Margit Norell. So they were actually working with the Margit Norell theories of repressed memories and childhood sexual abuse and stuff like that. So, so and, and Margit was the, uh, oh, what's it called? Handledare. Um, supervisor. Supervisor, yeah. yeah. Margit was the supervisor for a lot of those therapists. So they would be having therapy sessions during the weeks with Thomas Quick, and then they would go to Stockholm and meet Margit, and they would have this therapeutic supervision Mm. And then they would go back at Sater and keep going at it. So, in, pra- in you know, in, in practicality, Margit was actually the real shrink of Thomas Quick. Yeah, <laughs> with some sort of weird extension of it. But uh, a few of the followers of this Margit Norell cult they grew tired of it, and they grew tired of this 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 awe of Margit being the the all knowing shrink. So. Um, some some of these people dropped out and there were some internal conflicts and stuff like that when did you when did one start to question these ideas of repressed memories etc because they 
that was debunked pretty early on, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, repressed memories was debunked many years ago, really. Uh, what happened later on was that the whole repressed, this Freudian notion of repressed memories, it sort of came back in this new old shape in like the 80s. And it sort of had this weird second wind in it in the 90s, especially in Sweden. But we also saw some other weird cases of repressed memories around Europe. There was this in Norway, um, Bjungn. And we had this case in Holland as well that was quite awful. Um, but the, the the debunking of the repressed memories, I would say, is somewhat old, but it was definitely disproven by great scientific research by Elizabeth Loftus. Yes. Right. Yeah. And now, now here comes the really weird thing that really makes this story go one level more crazy than anything. Um, there had been quite some arguments and conflicts in the Swedish crime system regarding these repressed memories. And a few very vocal and I believe excellent scientists, they had really, really protested against this whole thing. But when the whole Studebergival quick thing started going and, and, and these repressed memories were referred to, the prosecutor called in a professor from Stockholm University called Sven-Åke Kristiansson. And Sven-Åke, he was the guy who pretty much scientifically vouched for these repressed memories. Now here comes the crazy part of it. Sven-Åke was a, a, a colleague of Elizabeth Loftus for some years. He, he did a postdoc over there. But he was also a patient of Margit Norell for eight years or so. So when they tried to look this up and they really tried to go to the bottom of all this, it turned out that Svenåke in this weird sense could sort of camouflage himself of being a serious experimental psychologist, but at heart he was a psychoanalyst and he was pushing the theories of Margit. And, uh, this uh, journalist, Don Josefsson, he secretly recorded how Svenåke admitted that Margit was the mother he never had and stuff like that. And oh. he, you know, Svenåke admitted these things in front of a hidden camera. <laughs> so it's just a level of crazy that's kind of hard to fathom. Yeah. So basically, I know that you kind of talked quite a lot about details of this case, but can we um, now be quite convinced that the Thomas Quick was innocent? I think so, most definitely. And uh, he, have, he has been um, declared I innocent and, or whatever you... I don't, sorry, the, the legal term is a bit... So, cleared, yeah. cleared of all charges, yeah. Yeah, cleared of all charges. Thank you so much. Yeah, and, and uh, if you look into these murder cases, they're actually quite absurd. There, there's, there's, for instance, um, some murders took place like in the very, very north of Sweden. And there's no record whatsoever that Sture Bergvall was in the north of Sweden those weeks. Most likely he was in the south of Sweden. And Sweden is a very tall country. It's like 400 kilometers, no, 4,000 yeah. kilometers long or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there's so, at so, least you know, certain that he could not have done all of these things and probably none of them. Probably none whatsoever. And that's what the government commission uh, concluded. So he's yeah. now a free man, or yeah, yeah, he's a free man. Sorry, as a, as an outsider who w wasn't really involved, in, and unfortunately, I haven't read much about it. Were any were all of these cases 
not even connected? Were they just like random murders? They were happen? random and they were also very strange in the sense that the murder victims were boys, uh, women, prostitute uh, women in Norway or, you know, men. And uh, for serial killers, that's a very, very rare thing. Usually serial killers have a, a profile. That's right. They've got a MO. So they, they go after a certain group of people. Yeah, or right. S- like right. certain height or certain whatever, you know. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so so yeah. what changes, if any, has this led to in the legal system in Sweden? Do you know that? Yeah, it's hard to say really. And to be perfectly honest with you, I'm not really in the legal system. Mm. Um, I've been very much at this from an academic point of view, so I can't really say that much of of the practicalities of it. But I tell you that the Swedish legal system itself is is a bit of a hodgepodge. It's a complex matter. And there there has been these last years some, some, some very serious critique against the Swedish legal system. Uh, for instance, we don't, we don't have juries in, in, in Sweden, but we have this similar jury system called Nemdemannasystemet. And uh, it, it, it's been shown that this, this system of uh, politically appointed jury members is very bad. And many of these politically appointed jury members are not really fit for, for, for the duty. They, they they're often sleeping in the courtrooms and stuff like that. Oh dear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I had this patient once. It was quite funny. She was she was working as a social secretary or something and she told me that she was at court like every week giving expert testimony in these, you know, family trials and whatnot. And she she said to me, I've been I've been to court every week for about two years now, and not a single time have I not seen a member of the jury asleep. Wow. Yeah. And that hasn't changed. No, it hasn't. And in, in 2011, they did this government report because they evaluated this, this jury system, politically appointed jury system in Sweden. And like 80% something of Swedish judges didn't like the system. They wanted this system to you know stop and, and they wanted to have higher qualifications for the jury members. And they would like a, a more of a non-political appointment and such and such. And, but the politicians did not like this suggestion, this reform. So they stopped it. Mm-hmm. So we're stuck with the old system. Right. Um, we wanted to talk to you also about another case. Um, the Kevin rega- case. Yeah, regarding a young boy called Kevin. That's right. Yeah. Um, can you explain to us and our listeners what this was all about? Yeah, I'll, I'll, or I'll do it Or is brief- about, actually. Yeah, so I, I do it briefly as well. About, about 19, 20 years ago or so, a four-year-old kid was found dead in the city of Arvika. And initially there were some confusion about this, whether the boy had died because of an accident or a murder or if the boy had been sexually abused or not. And there was some confusion because, for instance, the the medical examiner discovered some kind of, uh, I'm sorry if I'm a bit graphic here, but some kind of, you know, fluid in, in, in the child's uh, anal cavity. Oh. But they later discovered that that was actually the the lube that they put on the thermometer because when the kid came in they they took the temperature of him uh-huh. so the medical examiner wasn't sure if there was semen or just you know thermometer lube in the anal cavity of the child so there was some crazy confusion there for a while but the the, the police um, the chief of police there or whatever you call him his name is i think it's somebody he did this investigation and he publicly 
they have this press conference and he goes out and he says like the murderers of this four-year-old kid kevin are two other children five and seven year old two brothers hmm. and they have confessed to the murder of this four-year-old boy kevin and it was some kind of a violent game play that got out of hand and they ended up choking him with a stick and kicking him in the groin and stuff like that and then they sort of pulled the body a long distance into the water now in sweden if you're under the age of 15 you can't go to court but sometimes in sweden when you have very young people being convicted we have something called bevistalan it's it's not like a court it's not a court in the formal sense but you have a court hearing to you know you know to find out if they're guilty or not even though you can't sentence them to jail or anything but in sweden we didn't have bevistalan this time they they were just considered you know guilty without having their day in court mm-hmm. and then the social social authorities came in and whatever you know yeah. So so these two these two boys grew up for like 20 years thinking they're murderers. Can you tell us a little bit of how they interviewed these two children at the time and and if and how what what mistakes were made during those interviews? Well, sure. Just a quick backdrop though. Uh Don Josephson, the guy who did a magnificent research on the Thomas Quick case. Uh, he also got into researching this Kevin case and for the last two weeks here in Sweden he has sent two documentary films and uh, those films have stirred quite a reaction here in Sweden because on those films you can see videotapes from those interrogations and they're actually quite disturbing to watch these kids are being pressured uh, the psychological pressure on these kids is tremendous for instance there's this segment when one kid goes like can you get my mommy and the police officer goes like no your mom is not going to be here look me in the eyes and stuff like that wow uh, now on wednesday two days from now the third film is going to come and i know don Josephson a little bit personally and i've spoken just a little bit with him about these things and he's told me that whatever's going to come in this third movie in two days it's it's going to be revolting to see it it's it's going to be uh it's going to be a bomb in the swedish judicial system wow so until i haven't seen that third movie i can't really say that much because i don't know the whole picture yet but yeah. from those two movies that been so far you can you can tell that there there's been this massive massive psychological manipulation of these children and uh well it's it's hard to know now for sure and also to be perfectly honest with you i haven't researched the kevin case i i've i've only really taken taken part of these documentary films so I, i'm i'm not in any way an insider of the the whole kevin investigation i'm not mm. really so uh, just so you know and but do you think personally that there is a connection to the thomas quick case yes because <laughs> the very professor who was member of the psychoanalytic cult of Margit Norell, Sven-Åke Kristiansson, he was also the forensic psychologist involved in the Kevin case. Wow. And he saw he and he he was coaching the the police officers how to interrogate these children. 
So and and to you know to make this whole thing another level of crazy, there's been massive critique against Svenåke Kristiansson for many years, and Svenåke has been involved in approximately eighty murder investigations in Sweden. Now, some forensic scientists in Sweden say now that maybe we need to look into eighty murder investigations. Wow! So this is yeah. not just a question of two questionable uh, cases it it can be much it more. could be even more it could be even more and that's just horrifying really <laughs> sounds like somebody shouldn't be practicing anymore <laughs> yeah definitely and uh, there there has been like this silly little consequences for svenoke because after the bergwald scandal and the bergwald commission uh, svenoke kristiansson got some critique from the bergwald commission and he some years ago he came out with a book and that book is now banned from Stockholm University so there has been some little silly consequences but I, I'd say that there should be a lot more mm. investigation into Sven-Åke Kristiansson and there's this very well-known criminology professor in Sweden called Leif Geve Persson uh, Persson flat out says that Svenoke has multiple times committed perjury while in trial Wow. It's just amazing to me that um, when everything that's known about him is out there and he's still practicing it. Yeah, well, that's that's sort of part of the problem with Swedish academia. Or, I don't know, maybe it's maybe it's bigger part of academia in Europe and the world. I don't know, but I think it is a bigger problem. Uh, it's not just Sweden. I think we sp- we talked about it briefly. I can't remember which episode, but about the. Um, uh, the the the, the um, weight that uh, academics and professors and doctors have in society and how everybody listens to their opinion and then they are respected regardless. Everybody should be questioned. I mean, it doesn't matter what, what your education or social st- status is. If, if what you're doing is wrong, then you should be called on that. Yeah, of course. That, that's the very essence of academia and science. And, and, you know, and, and that's one thing that kind of bothers me because I see this gap between skepticism and academia. Yeah. It, it, that boggles my mind, really. Yeah. They should be one and the same all the way. Yeah. So if we go back to these two kids who were yeah. pronounced guilty, of course, I, I don't su- suppose we can ever know or, or whether they were guilty or not. Well, uh, I, I have some colleagues... Uh, psychologist colleagues and, and we we got this Facebook group, group secret Facebook group for psychologists and we're having quite some vivid discussions there and some some people there quite uh, with absolute certainty say like look these kids are innocent and Sven-Åke Kristiansson should be hung from the highest tree and stuff like that now I, I, I make no secret of that I do not fancy Sven-Åke Kristiansson <laughs> But I do think that we should at least wait until we've seen this third film from Don Jusesson yeah, before totally we make our exactly. final statements. Yeah. There was one thing I had in mind just to add with the whole, uh, uh, you know, academia, the, the discipline problem of academia. Because in, in, my, in my expertise and to the best of my knowledge, the, the, the way we punish cheating scientists, unethical scientists, is, is, is actually a quite lame quite weak system yeah like just just a few years ago there was this professor of pedagogic how, how do you say that in english pedagogic, pedagogic. Mm. yeah we had this professor named Kruksmark here in sweden and it turned out that his his journal uh, didactisk tidskrift uh, didactic journal 
it was completely bogus. He, he claimed it was a peer-reviewed journal. It was not peer-reviewed at all. And he used it as a platform to, you know, publicize himself and such. And it was, it was a hands-down, clear-cut case of scientific fraud. And Kroksmark had no consequences at all, to the best of my knowledge. Let's just go back to the cases of the um, little kids. And uh, as a psychologist, yeah. what do you think um, uh, would be an impact on on a child to be subjected to, to such allegations as being accused of a, of a murder um, and then grow up knowing that you are a murderer? Well, if you look at these two films from Don Yususon, you can clearly say there's been a lot of psychological distress for these two persons and their parents, of course. Uh, according to Don Josefsson, uh, the parents had to be hospitalized in a psychiatric ward when they were told that their kids were murderers. And uh, after these kids were declared guilty and all that, the, the family decided to never, ever, ever speak of this uh, whole incident. And uh, I, I think they also had to leave, move to another area and such, because there were these th- death threats and things coming into these kids. So, you know, it, it's probably been a living hell for 20 years for these kids. Mm-hmm. Can't even imagine, yeah. yeah. Uh, let's say, you know, in a hypothetical case, that you have yeah. a, a case like that, and, and the two kids actually did do this. Right. Uh, committed murder. <laughs> How should right. you treat... Do you know... Are you qualified to, to have an opinion on how how you should treat two children at that no. point? Uh, but that's a hard question. And, and you know, <laughs> uh, in all honesty, no, I, I'm, I'm not really that qualified in that sense of it. Because, like mm. I said, I, I'm a bit of an academic from this at this issue. I, I have never worked with the Swedish police. So, you know, I've never been in an interrogation room in that capacity. So, no, I, I can't tell. Mm. But if you look at the literature of it, you see that children as young as five and seven committing murder is extremely rare. There are some documented, well-documented case with like 12-year-olds and 10-year-olds murdering, sure. Uh, there's, for instance, this very well-known and horrifying story of a bulger. Uh, a little kid who was murdered by two 10-year-olds, I think there were, mm-hmm. in England in the 90s. And there's this other case called Mary Bell. Uh, but those those kids were a bit older than, you know, five and seven. Yeah. So um, I'm just, you know, for, for the sake of argument, okay, let's say these kids were were guilty of murder. That would I think that would be like the first case in history, I would say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's also <clears throat> some new information about a possible alibi for the two children. Yes. But, but that's coming very, very late from somebody who was a child at the time as well. Yeah, yeah, uh, a so 10-year-old how, kid. How, how reliable can such an alibi be after so many years coming from someone who was a child? Th- th- this is a hard thing because now you're really coming to the you know the heart of the matter in uh, in a very sensitive and hard topic of psychology, and that's the reliability of memory and all that. Yeah. And uh, when it comes to children, and, and the, if you look at this whole, this whole uh, incest, sexual child abuse panic that was raging in the 90s, there were a lot of psychologists who said with absolute certainty, children can't lie. It's impossible. Children cannot lie. Hmm. 
But there is this, I think he's a very interesting child psychologist named Michael Lewis. He had done some very good research, I think it was in the late 80s, where he had kids in a room and he put on these amazing toys, you know, chewing and, and bleeping and blinking. And he instructed the kids to not look at the toys. And then they left the room. <laughs> and as early as three years of age, you, you could have these kids looking at the toys anyway. And when he re-enters the room and asks them, did you look at the toy? These, these kids would lie. Yeah. They would deny it flat out. Of course, because I mean... And, you don't even yeah. have to go that far because I know that kids lie to please their parents and they look at them, you know, doing a little bit of cold reading, you know, when if the parents are angry or not impressed. They... I know Pontus got children. How about you? Uh, yeah, <laughs> they, they have been known to lie. Yes. Lie and <laughs> at I'm, very early I'm sure age. they've gotten away with it too a couple of times. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't have any children. So like I said, I'm an academic at these things, <laughs> not a practical man. Yeah. But yeah, of course, you know, of course, children lie, and it's been established very well. But we're we're sort of we're coming to a very weird and strange situation here when 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 science is sort of dealing with absurdities, like and and all of a sudden you have these 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 uh, academics and psychologists and whatever you want to call them claiming children can't lie. Uh, you know, and, and, and that just makes things really hard, re really strange in many ways. You know, common sense since, you know, ancient history knows that kids can lie. So, yeah, it's it's very, very difficult. It's very hard to know these things for a fact. Um, what can we learn from these affairs and what should be the consequences? I guess broader co consequences um, to the system, to... Yeah, I, I think you, at some level you, you have to look at these things from an historical perspective because like I said you, you have to sometimes go back to the 90s to understand what was going on because now 20 years later we're sort of we're reaping what we sow back in the 90s yeah. and you know there was a time before the 90s as well believe it or not <laughs> so you, you have to look at it from an historical perspective and you know, for forensic sciences, you know, even if, if, if they're chemistry or ballistics or, or, you know, fingerprint analysis or whatever they are, they have been very, very important in the, the judicial systems all around the world during the 20th century. But we have discovered that these forensic techniques can be, can be very, very, you know, wrongfully... The techniques themselves are good, but you can apply them in these really crazy matters. Mm. And you can end up with this really scientific nonsense in the courtrooms. And Do you think uh, there's a, there's yeah. a delay also be after a, a new technique has come and it takes a long time for it to find its way into to, to the court systems and even to maybe even also to the psychology field? Yes and no. Because there's this hilarious phenomenon now we call the CSI effect in the court system. Mm, People yeah. watch the TV show CSI. And sometimes jury members can make these crazy verdicts that go completely against what the expert has said during the court proceedings. And the jury members go, yeah, but we saw this episode of CSI. <laughs> so... You know, pe people being like, you know, jury members can be scientific ignoramuses and, and yet they know for sure because they watched some episodes of CSI. And I'm not saying that CSI is all bullshit. Some things in CSI are, you know, proper techniques. 
However, what they usually do in these CSI episodes is that they sort of exaggerate the capacity of fingerprint and DNA analysis and stuff like that. So there was this case some years ago, there was this guy who was running away from a crime scene. He fell on this lawn and he got up and ran away. And the jury members were very puzzled. Why couldn't the police detectives take the guy's fingerprints from the grassy lawn? <laughs> yeah. So there's an over... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Trust and on, you know, on these things. Yeah, yeah sure. And, you know, and I, I think it really comes down to a much bigger problem. And that is like the whole, you know, the heart of skepticism. What function, what what position, you know, what capacity is science to have in our society? And when it comes down to murder trials, it's no longer like a harmless quarrel. It's a life and death matter. Mm. By the way, about these two cases, are there any sources in English that people can I, look I, into? I am pretty sure that Hannes Råstam, the first journalist who broke the story in a, in a good way, and uh, Don Josefsson, their books have been translated to English. Uh, in the Kevin case, there is only for now some Swedish documentaries, uh, but they will probably be bootlegged and you know circulated on the web. And maybe someone who has a lot of time will put some English subtitles to them. All right, thank you very much, Teddy. But be, uh, before we let you go, uh, yeah, sure, no problem. Uh, on another note, I know yeah. that you recently started a podcast in Swedish. Yeah, but but it's own. in Swedish, so <laughs> it's in Swedish, but. Uh, we do have few Swedish listeners, but yeah, not, we do. Yeah, yeah I, I have this little Swedish podcast called Melon School of Egg, uh, but don't take it too seriously. It's pretty much me just ranting and raving about my days. Okay. So <laughs> I, I'm, 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 I'm planning on maybe doing something a bit more seriously in the future. All right. All, All right. right. And um, again, for our listeners, um, where can they find out about what you do and follow your work um, if they're interested? Well, I'm on Facebook, and you know, I'm I'm a very public person. Um, Twitter? In... <laughs> no, no, I gave up Twitter some years ago. Okay. So, yeah, <laughs> but you know, add me on Facebook. I don't really mind, and uh, you know, my my phone number is public and everything. I, I I'm I'm not hiding from anyone, so you know, just I'm easy to find. Cool. All right. All right. Well, thanks for your time. Okay, thank you so thank much you for very having much, me. I, I, I uh, hope you can edit this somehow because it got a bit sidetracked sometimes, I'm afraid. No, no, that's no. fine. That's fine. All right. All right. Thank you very much, Teddy. It was great talking to you. Oh, it was great talking to you guys as well. Take care. Thank well, take you. Care. Bye-bye. 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 So, very uh, interesting conversation and... Um, um, I specifically remember listening in one of the congress uh, conferences I went to. Uh, one of the speakers talk about the satanic panic back in well, it was a few years ago when it happened uh, with implanted memories and fake memories and how harmful it was for many families. Uh, so it kind of brought the, all those memories back uh, and just proves uh, how fallible we are and how we we are very suggestible or some of us are certainly are. Uh, very suggestible. Yeah, all of us are. Um, especially when you're a child. I mean, I don't remember what I've done when I was six years old. No, absolutely not. And, and you know, Can't... being interrogated by a strange policeman, somebody you don't know, no. and, you know, telling you that you cannot go from here, basically, until you tell me what, what you know, looking me in the eye mm. before you see your mommy. You know, you would confess or so tell them anything you want. You, you yeah. think they want to know, so... It's te- really terrible, really terrible. 
Yes, um, and um, hopefully cases like these, when they become public, will lead to a, ch a positive change within the system, uh, within the legal system and the psychology um, yeah. approaches, etc. I'm just, you know, I'm remaining hopeful that we are, we will learn from our mistakes. Yeah. Although, of, although, of course, the history has shown that that's quite often isn't the case. No. Well, it's it's hard to know, but I, I guess it's good that these things come out in the open because at least gives the opportunity to rectify things that are apparently, you know, obviously wrong. Yeah. Mm. And also now, uh, if I'm not mistaken, um, there's there's been a lot of excitement around uh, eyewitness testimony and how unreliable that is as well. Yes. I don't know if you're aware of, of any point, uh, cases, Pontus, but um, it's been also like discussed by psychologists and, and uh, professionals sure. in, yeah. in that field saying that actually when a person says, I know I've seen something and it happened months ago, the, this whole thing is, can be completely fabricated by the brains and never happen. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, there's a growing awareness. I think that eyewitness testimonies are not uh, very reliable at all. And but even in these cases, it's not only misremembering or not remembering. It's also trying to please the 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 interrogator, and you know, maybe for attention, maybe to become yeah. important, maybe yeah. to in in. In one, you know, in the case of uh, Thomas Quick, not wanting to be released from the from the psychiatric ward because you don't know what you're gonna do if you get outside, so you keep That's on right, yeah. confessing to more and more just to stay in your you know comfortable environment. Mm. Well, um, I think that's it for today for the show. Yes. All right. So that's a wrap, and we'll um, be here next week recording next episode. Please tune in. Um, until then, goodbye. Goodbye. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time. But until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe uh, A series of scandals actually in the uh, in the in the what what's that word okay oh do you know mm. what just uh, off off the uh, record uh, i can't believe uh, andres left me saying fuck the royals in my last episode <laughs> it was funny i'm glad you listened to the show <laughs>